Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. Sometimes uh, it's mysterious and confusing, like our passage from Daniel. But you are one who um, is willing to teach us to, in fact, open our eyes, um, to see, to know, and to behold you as you truly are. Lord, we ask that you would help us uh, to come under your word to unpack this incredible story of your transformation on Mount Hermon. We ask that we would walk away similarly uh, to Peter, James, and John, Lord, transformed, um, able to see you as you truly are. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Some people have favorite cars. Other people have favorite clothes. I have favorite tools. Some of you thought I was going to talk about football teams. Don't worry. <laughs> Not today. Although I love the efficiency and precision of power tools, my very favorite tools do not have a cord. On the screen, you will see my favorite hand tool. It's a number four bronze-bodied Lee Nelson bench plane. Mm. (laughs) Planes have a simple job to make boards flat, square, and smooth. The radiant finish that a hand plane can produce on a board is like no other. But the reason I love this tool the most is because it took me a ton of time to master it. I remember the very first time that I tried to make the edge of a board straight and square. You see this picture, the application. I put the board in the vise with the edge face up like it's shown there, and I began to take shavings. In a relatively short amount of time, I was able to produce one continuous shaving from the start to the end of the board. This is an indication that the board is relatively straight. I thought I was done. I took it out of the vise, I looked at it, and I realized it wasn't square. It was slanted to the left. I realized that I had put too much pressure on the left side of the board. So I put it back in the vise, and I thought, okay, I'll get it this time. Focus on the right. Well, a minute later, I pulled it back out, and now it was slanted to the right. Again and again, I corrected and overcorrected my problem. And when I was finally finished, my board was much narrower than I intended. (laughs) Finally, it hit me. I have to balance the pressure equally on both sides of the board in order to achieve something like this, a square edge to the face. As I read our passages this morning, I I realized that there's something similar we must do as it relates to understanding and speaking about Jesus. Some of us were given a picture early on of Jesus like a strict teacher, ruler in hand ready to wrap the wrists, the hands of anyone who got out of line. But as we read scripture, we saw that he's tender. He's compassionate to sinners like us. And so we had to recalibrate our picture of Jesus. 
Others were given a picture of Jesus which was more akin to a hippie. Passive, permissive, peaceful, a fun-loving guy. But as we read our Bibles, we realized Jesus is not our buddy. He's the Lord of the universe. How do we reconcile then these two dissonant pictures of Jesus? The intimate and the intimidating. We must hold them in tension. We must balance the two. Jesus is at the same time the Lord and a friend. Jesus, uh, we are at the same time the beloved and his subjects. Mark's account of Jesus' radical transformation on this mountain provides us a very important counterbalance to notions of Jesus that we might have. And in fact, in our story, um, as we approach uh, the bottom of that hinge Britt shared last week, as we get close to Jesus' arrest and crucifixion in Jerusalem, we need this picture so we understand that Jesus is not passive. Jesus is not helpless, but Jesus is walking in the will of his Father. Join me in Mark chapter 9. We're going to start in verse 2. It says this, And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. Our passage begins with an important detail. After six days. Six days after what? Six days after Jesus asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? Six days after Peter said, you are the Lord, the Messiah. And six days after Jesus dropped a bomb saying that the Messiah must suffer and die. Six days after he said this in verse one of our chapter. And he said to them, Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. What Peter, James, and John are about to witness is the first taste of this promise being fulfilled. They are going to see God's kingdom coming with power. And it's important that they respond appropriately. The setting of the scene is atop this great mountain. Most commentators believe it's Mount Hermon. You can look it up sometime. 9,000 feet above sea level with incredible views of sea and valley all around. But the most amazing thing that they're going to see is not the scenery, but the Son of God on full display. Let's pick back up in verse 3. It says, And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Peter, James, and John are surrounded by incredible views with the sky above and the surroundings below. But in an instant, 
their gaze is transfixed on Jesus, who we are told is transfigured before their very eyes. It's kind of an odd word, isn't it? Raise your hand if you've ever used the word transfigured in everyday conversation, not about this passage, right? Yeah, I didn't think so. Um, Maybe a helpful way of understanding it for those who are sort of scratching their heads uh, comes from the message version. And also, Dios Habloe uses the same phrase, that he changed in appearance. All of a sudden, Jesus is radiant. His clothes are a bright white, which could never be accomplished through human means of using bleach and laundry. And we're even told in Matthew's gospel that Jesus' face shines like the sun. An incredible picture. Um, In fact, if you, in the middle of that Daniel reading, if you heard the description of the ancient one or the ancient of days, there's a lot of parallel there. The the bright whites, uh, I believe, of his hair was mentioned in that passage. It's evident, it's clear that Jesus then is more than your typical rabbi. Africa Bible Commentary describes it this way. His outward appearance was completely transformed, allowing the trio to catch a glimpse of his inner glory. Even his clothes reflected unsurpassed glory. Kent Hughes, you'll see on the screen in his commentary, wrote this. For a brief moment, the veil of his humanity was lifted. And the true essence was allowed to shine through. The glory that was always in the depths of his being rose to the surface for that one time in his earthly life. It was a glance back and a look forward into his future glory. Now we're also told that Elijah and Moses appear with Jesus. It's kind of strange, right? Why those two? There's so many prominent figures in the Old Testament. Why Elijah and Moses? I think it's helpful to remember that Moses is perhaps the greatest leader in the history of Israel. Uh, He brings the people out of their slavery in Egypt to the doorstep of the promised land. But most importantly, he gives to the people from God the law. Um, a description of how it is that they might live in good relationship with God, how they might have life and life to the full. Elijah is probably the greatest prophet. He, He acted and he spoke with incredible authority as he invited, as he pleaded, um, and sometimes, um, worked really, uh, strongly, (laughs) say it that way, um, to help the people of God return to their first love. And so we have, standing alongside of Jesus, representation of the law and the prophets. But what's amazing is it's Jesus who stands out. These are some of the most amazing, important figures that Peter, James, and John heard about their whole life growing up. And yet it's Jesus who shines bright. Because in Jesus, we see the fulfillment of both the law and the prophets, the calling back of all people to God. So, stunned, 
Dumbfounded, Peter, James, and John take in the scene. And who'd have, got, who'd have guessed Peter is the first to speak? And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good that we're here. Let's make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. Now, many commentators speculate on what was Peter talking about? What are tents? What are tabernacles? What are shelters? Different translations use different words. Why did he say this? What was he aiming to do? I actually think the text is pretty clear here. Peter is terrified. He has no idea what to say, but he still says something anyway, right? Some of us are like that. It's okay. It's part of our personality. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine the awe that came over them? Um, It's actually not all that dissimilar from what we read in Daniel chapter 7, right? Daniel describes this vision he had of four beasts coming out of the sea. These four beasts representing different kingdoms. And then he sees one who looks like a son of man coming down on the clouds. That one is given authority and power by the ancient of days, another description of God. And the difference in his dominion and the difference in his kingdom is that it will be everlasting And it will be for the good of all peoples, nations, and languages. But in the midst of all this, twice, Daniel describes his deep fear and distress at what he is seeing. Even says that the color in his face changed towards the end of the chapter. Have you ever stopped to consider what the unveiled glory of Jesus, have you ever stopped to consider how terrifying it might be to take that in? How might this picture of Jesus serve as a helpful counterbalance to other notions that we might have about him? The story continues in verse 7. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. After Peter speaks impetuously, talking without really knowing what he's saying, there's another voice that can be heard. This voice, we are told, comes from a cloud that overshadows the people. All throughout the Old Testament, there are accounts of the glory in the presence of God coming before the people in the form of a cloud, which overshadows them. And that voice belongs to God the Father. And his message answers the question that's burning in Peter, James, and John's heart. What do we do with this picture of Jesus? How do we respond appropriately? Listen to him. Do not simply regard Jesus as one among many important teachers in history. 
Do not cherry pick from among his instructions and teachings the thing which seems appealing to you and ignore the rest. Don't be so focused on telling other people that they should listen to Jesus, but listen to him yourself. Do what he says, and you have life and life to the full. Can you imagine their wonder? I mean, just six days ago, Jesus told them that he must suffer and die. Peter takes him aside and rebukes him and says, No, Lord, because what Jesus said doesn't match up with his expectations. He didn't listen to Jesus, he forgot who was the Lord. Well, the Father reminds him. He says, Jesus is the Lord. Listen to him. Do what he says, even when you don't understand. That's the invitation that they receive. I think um, as we unpack this, and we have to ask ourselves, what happens when the thing Jesus instructs me to do um, is hard? It doesn't match up with my expectations. I I think we have to ask ourselves as we enter a new year, what will it practically look like for me to listen to Jesus this year? What things must I do? Um, Who can I engage with in this practice? And maybe most importantly, we have to ask and remember, what does the voice of Jesus sound like? I think I learned this um, really acutely when I was 19 years old. I was uh, trying to decide whether or not to ask Lauren to be my wife. We were young. In the eyes of most, we were far too young. But since I was 16, I knew I wanted to marry her. And so I asked the Lord, I prayed, I said, Lord, will you bless this union? Is this proposal in your will, in your timing? In response, um, I, I heard something curious, something I didn't expect to hear in response from the Lord. I heard it clearly in my head. These were the words. Take care of my daughter. I still shiver when I think back on that moment. It was like a scene from a movie, right? The father answers the door for his daughter's boyfriend, shotgun in hand. (laughs) Only Jesus didn't need a shotgun. He got his point across. I felt at once the deep love that he had for Lauren. And I knew I never wanted to take her for granted or hurt her. At the same time, it's the weirdest thing. I knew that the love that Jesus had for Lauren was not in opposition to the love that Jesus had for me. I felt seen, known, cared for, and I knew that he was for me, even as he commanded me in this way. What's more, what I heard resonated deeply with Scripture. 
Ephesians 5.25 says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. I realized that Jesus was inviting me to a road, to walk a road, which he already traveled. One marked by self-sacrifice, not selfishness. And although I struggle daily to live up to this calling, I know that he'll never stop correcting me when I go astray. And he'll never stop helping me to start again once I confess my weakness. You see, the voice of Jesus often sounds like what we need to hear and not always like what we want to hear. It is stern and compassionate at the same time like no other. And it makes us feel loved and known even as it requires concrete obedience. Let's look at the end of the story. In verse 8. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down from the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. Just as quickly as it had all begun, it was done. They were just there with Jesus. And as they began to descend from the mountain, they have an interesting conversation. Jesus swears them to secrecy. It's kind of strange, right? I mean, they've just seen still more proof that Jesus is Israel's savior. Aren't they supposed to go tell it on a mountain? But throughout the book of Mark, Jesus is consistent. He maintains a low profile. Why? Because Peter, uh, sorry, because like Peter, the people cannot fathom a suffering servant. In fact, in John's gospel, we're told that after Jesus feeds the 5,000, the people try to force him to become their king. What would they do if they knew about this incredible transformation on Mount Hermon? They would get in the way. They would interfere with the work that God the Father has for Jesus. They would try to stop him from suffering and dying, and that would be tragic. Finally, the disciples ask Jesus a question. Um, it's found in verses uh, 11 and 12. The question is, why do the scribes, the religious teachers, say that Elijah must come first? In response, Jesus explains, on this one, the scribes are right. Elijah does come before the Savior. But the scribes have missed an important detail. The scriptures speak of the fact that both Elijah and the Savior will need to suffer. He then alludes to John the Baptist when he asserts that Elijah has come and the people did with him what they wanted. They mistreated him, rejected him, 
just like they will reject and mistreat Jesus. A helpful thing to see at the end of the story is that Peter, James, and John agree to keep this matter to themselves. They clearly don't understand, right? They're asking each other, what does he mean, raising from the dead? And yet, they obey the Father's voice by listening to Jesus. This is our invitation as well. The most common way to make a tabletop out of wood is by taking multiple boards and gluing them edge to edge, like so. The only way that that top will be flat is if the edges are perfectly square and straight. Jesus is the cornerstone of our faith. The cornerstone is that stone by which all other stones are set. If it is true, if it is square, the whole building can be so. Jesus is true. Jesus is square. He puts all things into proper alignment. Having a clear view of who Jesus is is vitally important for us to stay aligned with him and to stay aligned with his body, the church. We have to be careful. We must resist oversimplified, overcorrected portrayals of Jesus. We have to take him at his word and take scripture at its word. If we do this, we'll be confronted with multiple paradox. <laughs> we'll see that Jesus is both the priest and the sacrifice. That Jesus is both the king and the servant who washes his disciples' feet. We'll see that Jesus is both the great shepherd, the lion of Judah, and at the very same time, the lamb meek and mild. He is approachable, tender, and kind. And yet his coming will inspire fear, awe, and reverence. May God continually renew our minds and open our ears that we may behold him as he truly is, that we may listen and obey. Pray with me. Lord, we thank you for these uh, incredible glimpses uh, that we can only imagine about at this time. Lord, I take Mark at his word in that the appearing of Jesus in his full glory was terrifying. And yet you are so approachable. Lord, we thank you for these things. We ask that you would help us to live lives which have the right balance of honor, fear, um, and love and tenderness. Lord, that we would know that you care for us and that even your commands are compassion towards us. Help us to love you, to seek you, to follow you as you truly are. 
Give us clear eyes and clear ears. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.